I know I'm not supposed to pick favorites, but the book of Isaiah is definitely by far my favorite Old Testament book by a mile. It's an amazing book. Did you know that it's quoted most often in the New Testament? The most often quoted book is Isaiah, except for the Psalms. It's throughout the, Old, throughout the New Testament. Some people have called Isaiah the miniature Bible. It has 66 chapters, just like the, book ha- uh, the Bible has 66 books. It's divided into two halves, the first one speaking predominantly of judgment and the second half speaking predominantly of grace. Did you know that the name Isaiah is actually the combination of two Hebrew words, Yesha and Yah. Yesha means salvation. It's the name of Jesus, Yeshua. And Yah is the short word for Yahweh. So even in the name Isaiah, it declares Jesus is Lord. Did you know that? We could just go home right now. That's enough. (laughs) That's enough. All you need to know is that about Isaiah. But I want to give you a tool for reading Isaiah. As I'm sure you know by now, we're going to be studying Isaiah all summer long, looking at his greatest hits, the phrases in Isaiah that are familiar to many. We're going to be unpacking them, diving into them. But I want to give you a tool for reading Isaiah that will help, I think, throughout the summer. Oftentimes when we read the Bible, we try for application of the word. You've heard the phrase, application is everything. But actually with Isaiah, that's not quite true. It's not just application of the word, it's implication. Because Isaiah tells the big story of God and God's people. That's a story that we are implicated into by his grace. If we were to simply try to apply Isaiah to our lives, we'd actually get into a little bit of trouble. Because there's a lot of judgment, there's a lot of calling on the nation of Israel. And if we just tried to apply that to us, we might draw a little equal sign between the nation of Israel and our country. And we would all of a sudden become uh, political readers of Isaiah. We would say, yes, I'm going to apply what God said to Israel to the United States of America. And suddenly we've gotten into political territory. But rather, we ought to seek implication in the story for ourselves. Not how do we apply this to our country, but how am I personally, how are we personally implicated in the truth, in the big story of Isaiah. So remember that, and it'll serve you well throughout the summer. So that's all by way of introduction to the series. But how does Isaiah himself introduce the book? Let's look together. If you've put your Bible away, I invite you just to take it out of the sleeve in front of you. Look again at the first chapter of Isaiah. Here's the way that Isaiah introduces his book. Chapter 1, verse 1, the vision of Isaiah. Now, oftentimes when we hear the word vision, we think maybe he had a dream one night. He had a vision of God. But in fact, it's much more involved than that for Isaiah. You see then he spells out four kings, and those lasted over a course of 50 years. So it wasn't just a dream one night. In fact, what Isaiah is declaring is that he had an open portal into the heavenlies, into the throne room of God, and what he's about to declare is the word of God. We know that because in the beginning of verse 2, he he shows us who his audience is. Listen, he says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. You see, Isaiah has positioned himself so that when he speaks, not just the people around him can hear, but all of heaven and all of earth. It's like Isaiah is saying to us, he's in this doorway between the heavenlies and between earth. And he's saying, I have an open line of communication with Yahweh. 
And what I'm about to say are the words that he himself is declaring to us. Now, this is quite a way to open your book, isn't it? Isaiah doesn't say, the following are my theological opinions. No, he's saying he's got an open line of communication with God. And everything that's about to follow is from God. He's simply dictating from God. So what we're about to read is the voice, is the words of God. So what does God say through Isaiah? Well, what he does in chapter 1 is he introduces three big themes that will serve throughout the whole first half of Isaiah. He'll introduce a fourth theme in the second half, but for the first half, three big themes. And the first one is judgment. Judgment. Halfway through the second verse, God says through Isaiah, children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Now, when we hear that the first theme of Isaiah is judgment, sometimes that makes us nervous. That's why we skip ahead to the New Testament. There goes God judging his people again. But look at the picture that he's given to us of his judgment. It's not of some stern judge looking down at his people who have rebelled. No, it's of a broken-hearted father. He says, my children... I've raised you better than this. Children have I brought up, I've reared them, but they have rebelled against me. It's as if God is looking at his household that he's created, his covenant of faith with his people, the home that he's built for his people. And he says, these guys are like teenagers. They've turned their back, they've run out the back door. They've rebelled against me, they've run away from home. And it's broken his heart. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. Even the dumb ox and the stubborn donkey know how to find their way home. But my children, because of the rebelliousness in their hearts, have chosen to run away from home. The first theme is judgment, and it's of a broken-hearted father looking in sadness upon his children. Now, any of us who've raised children or are actively raising children now, we know a little bit of what this feels like, don't we? We give them discipline, we give them love, we give them our lives. We turn around for one minute and turn back, and what are they doing? The exact opposite thing we've just told them to. And we say, I've raised you better than this. And that's what God is feeling when he gets the chance to speak through Isaiah. He says, my children, why have you turned from me? I am the loving father that you need, and look what you've done. But he doesn't just leave them there. He doesn't leave them. That's not where the book ends, not just simply with judgment. He provides for them a pathway home. He provides for them a way to re-enter the household of God. The first theme was judgment. The second theme is the pathway home, which is justice. He gives them a picture of what it would look like for them to re-enter the household, and that is his way of justice. But first, before the children can come home, they got to wash up. Look what it says in verse 16 with me. He says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil. Now, I love it when it rains because I love watching my children play in the mud. They are never happier than when they're just out there 
slopping around in the mud. And just this past week, they're playing in the rain and in the mud. And you know how it goes. Suddenly it's time for them. They've had their fun. They've had their fill. They come and they, there they appear at the doorway of the house. And what do you think Nancy says to them? Stop right there. Remove those clothes from before my eyes, go straight to the bathtub and wash up. That is exactly what God says to his children in verse 16. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil. He's the loving father creating a pathway for them to come back home. They're these rebellious children, but before they re-enter into the household, he says, wash yourselves. Now, you and I know that he's not talking about literal physical mud on their clothing. He's talking about their hearts. Their behaviors need to stop. They need to be corrected. They need to wash up with a ritual, a a faithful, a spiritual, a heart cleansing before they can come back into his household. And then what happens next in verse 17 is a little bit of a surprise to me. I might expect God to say, my children, please come home out of your rebelliousness. Wash yourselves, do a ritual cleansing, and then enter my temple and worship me. Come to church. But instead, what he says, let's read verse 17 together. He says, wash yourself, cease to do evil. Then verse 17, learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Do you want to know how God's heart beats? Go out into the world and find what theologians call the quartet of the vulnerable, the orphan, the widow, the poor, and the oppressed. It actually shouldn't surprise us that this is what God calls his people to do after they've washed themselves, to go and find the fatherless. It's right in character with what he is doing for his people. You see, in their rebellion, in our rebellion, when we run away from the household of God, what we've done is we've orphaned ourselves. We've become like lost children out there in the world without our father, and he wants to restore us back into the household of God, to restore the family connection with us. And along the way, he wants us to find the people in our communities who are literally fatherless, who are orphaned by no choice of their own, and to bring them back to restore those relationships. That's how we know. That's how God's heart beats. Some of you have experienced that. You've been on mission trips You've helped out at the Pacific House. You've been with the men of Pivot. You know that when you participate in God's justice work, you feel close to God, don't you? Well, that's because God is in the business of restoring family relationships. Our relationship with Him, our Heavenly Father, but also our relationships with one another. Now, we need to seek implication in this story, don't we? Instead of thinking application, how can I apply this to the people in my life? Oh, look at those people who've run away from God and we have people in our minds. No, we need to ask ourselves, in what ways have I been like a rebellious child? In what ways does God, our designer, look at us and say, I designed you better than that. I have a greater purpose than that behavior that you're doing, that heart attitude that you have, that relationship that's broken. In what ways is our Heavenly Father looking at all of us and saying, I have something better for you. Just please come home. You've turned your back on me in this small way. Wash yourselves. Come back into my household. And along the way, seek justice. Look for the orphan, the widow, the oppressed, and the poor. 
we are implicated in God's story of judgment and also his invitation to justice. But if we're honest with each other, we know that there's a problem in this scenario, isn't there? Because who among us can really find our way back into God's household? Because who among us seeks justice in this way all the time? Who among us can truly wash ourselves? No, what would be proven over the next six, seven hundred years is that God's people, even when they try, they're so full of sin, they're so full of rebelliousness that they would need a deeper cleansing. They would need a deeper washing. And so that's the third theme that God introduces here in the first chapter of Isaiah. The first is judgment, the second is justice, and the third is Jesus. He points to a future cleansing. And so he says in verse 18, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Now, I love it when Jesus, when God brings out the Sunday school illustrations for us. He makes things very simple. He says, think about this, my children. There's two colors. I want to hang up a a red flannel for you. Consider the color red. Why is it red? It's a representation of all of our sin and the consequences of all of our sin. The consequences of our sin is death. Let the red speak of the blood of death that all of our sins have earned us. But now, little children, consider a white flannel, a white banner where it's pure, where it's clean. And God says your sin, the consequences of your sin will be changed from red, from death, to the light of snow and forgiveness and purity and eternity. And how will he do that? What would be the future cleansing? It would be the cross of Christ. That is a story I want to be implicated into, don't you? And how do I know that it's the cross of Christ? Well, there's another vision in the New Testament. It's not Isaiah this time. It's another man named John who had the privilege of having that doorway portal into the heavenlies. And John, I'll put this up on the wall, Matthew. You can display that for us. John gets a vision into the last day, the final day, when all of God's children will be presented before him, be presented to him on the throne. And look at what it says. Revelation 7, 13 and 14. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. This is the future hope that Isaiah is pointing towards, made possible by the cross of Christ. Do you want to be counted in that number of people presented before the Father in in a pure white robe? Now, there's something a little bit counterintuitive about this, isn't there? How can something go from being red in sin, crimson, scarlet, to be made washed pure? How can you wash something that's red in something that's red, the blood of Jesus, and make it pure? Well, what happens here is there's an exchange. The reason that the cross of Christ brings us purity, the reason that it's a deeper cleansing is because Jesus took upon himself all the consequences, all the death of all of our sin. That's why he died in our place, so that in exchange he would give us the righteousness that he deserved, the eternity that he deserved, the righteousness that he is. That's the exchange that happens on the cross, our sin, our death for his life. 
So when we are washed in the blood of the Lamb, we are made white. We're given a white robe. We're given forgiveness. We're given a place back in the household of God the Father. I want to be implicated in that story. I want to be presented one day before the Father as pure white. There was a moment back in March where all of this came flooding in, and I realized the depth of the truth of being implicated in God's redemption story, of being washed in his blood. Some of you were there. We had the privilege of going to Israel, about 29 of us, I think. And when one of our last days in Jerusalem, our guide, Brian Woodbin, told us that we'd be going to the house of Caiaphas. Now, some of you remember your Holy Week details. Caiaphas is the high priest that tries Jesus before handing him over to Pilate. And we were going to be going to the place where archaeologists had discovered it, and they knew with quite a degree of certainty that this is the home of Caiaphas, where Jesus was tried, and there's a little courtyard outside the home, and you remember that Peter was out in a courtyard warming himself by a fire when he denies Jesus three times. You get to stand in that courtyard. It's still there today. And then he brought us in closer to the home, closer into the home where, where Caiaphas would try prisoners. But then he brought us downstairs to the prisoner's holding cell. And we know that it's a prisoner's holding cell, that it was used for that purpose because as you walk down the stairs into that place, you can see the, the divots on the wall from where the chains of the prisoners rubbed against the stone. And as we were walking down in there, I started to become overwhelmed with the awareness that our Lord, that Jesus, was held in that place as a prisoner. And we all got down there in that pit. We all fit in there. And we started reading from Psalm 88. And then Amy Clapdye, who most of you know, she's been our choir director for a while. She started singing, Were You There When They Crucified My Lord? And I started thinking about why Jesus went into that pit, why he went to the cross. It wasn't just because Caiaphas put him on trial. It wasn't just because the Romans were cruel to him. He went in there because of me, because of all my sin, all the ways I've been like a rebellious child against him. I've turned my back on him. I've run out the back door. And I started thinking about all of your sin. I started thinking about all the sin of the whole world. All of the sin, all of the death, all of the redness of the blood that, that sin leads to. And why he went in there and he took it all upon himself. He was on the path to justice for us. He knew the judgment from God the Father was true, that we all are sinful and fall short of the glory of God. So he went and he died in our place. And as we were there in that pit, it was all flooding in. And I, well, I, I just lost it. I wept. The 28 or so other people on the trip, they got to see Pastor Nathan just fall to his knees and weep. Out of gratitude for what he's done, also out of horror for what I've done, what we've all done. Come, let us reason together. Though your sins have been like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. We will be presented before the throne of the Father in pure white robes for one reason only. Jesus died in our place. He 
is our pathway home. He is our pathway to restore the relationship between us and the Father. And he is our pathway to restore the relationships that we have among each other. As we spend the rest of the summer studying Isaiah, my prayer for you is that the word would come alive for you, that you would know that you are implicated in God's big story, that you've been washed in the blood of the Lamb, and you only need to receive it, and then join him on his justice mission to find those in the world who yet are fatherless. Amen.